This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 250 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. Hey guys, how y'all doing today? Tracy? Yes? We have a fun story tonight that involves a Minnesota state capitol building. Okay. Lots of lots of uh, stories involved in this one, sightings and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Pretty cool for uh, a political building. Or I should say a government building, not political building. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we want to start off by thanking all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you guys, gals, and service animals for everything that you do. Yes, we appreciate you guys so very much. You're always in our prayers, and thank you for keeping us safe. Also, want to make sure that uh, we let everyone know that you are wanted, you are loved, you are needed even if you don't feel that way sometimes even if you're having a rough patch in life even if you're struggling with either jobs or unemployment or whatever the case may be and just know that there are people out there willing to step in and give you some support Um, hopefully you have people in your life that will seek you out and just offer without you having to ask but there is no shame in asking so if you ever need to ask of someone tracy and i are available and also, there is our group, and um, like I said, there's five five thousand people in there that are willing to give you the support you need. But please don't ever be ashamed to ask. Yes, please remember that we're always here for you guys. If you just want to reach out to the the hotline, that number is eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. You can text them also at seven four one seven four one. And just remember, we're always a phone call away. Absolutely. Tracy, as usual, this episode is brought to you by El Yucateco Hot Sauce. It is the number one habanero-based hot sauce in the United States. Top 10 out of all hot sauces. It is hashtag king of flavor because they put the focus on the flavor, not on the heat. That's a true story. Yeah. It's still hot. Yeah. But it's got flavor. Yeah. That's a good combination. Yeah. I've had hot sauces before that they're just burn your mouth up and... Mm-hmm. You really can't even taste it. Yeah, there was no, it didn't add to the flavor. A good hot sauce will add to the flavor of what you're eating, not take over the flavor. Absolutely correct. So. So try it out, guys. It's really good. You guys should start using that in your marketing. You know, you could take I just made that up (laughs) on the spot, but. And I won't even charge you for it. Oh, there you go. Hey. If you don't have El Yucateco in your grocery store, which most major groceries, such as Target, Meyer, and Walmart carry it, you can get it at com. Mention Hillbilly Horror and get 10% off. Had to think about it. I almost said 20% off and that would have been wrong. 10% (laughs) off. That's what you get. That's exactly right, guys. Try it out. Good good time to do that, too, right now with barbecue and and all that good weather coming our way. It's barbecue time. Mm -hmm. 
And the and like I said, Chipotle is my favorite one, and you can't find that one at the stores. I've not seen it at the store, so but you can get it online. There you go. I hope you guys have been enjoying all the near death experience stuff. Last last week's episode was completely on that. Our dead times episode this week was on near death experiences, and we're going to add to that because this week we have a very special conversation with David J. Wallace, mm-hmm. and he has had four near-death experiences that is crazy he he's in hawaii he's a reiki master he is um a psychic he's a medium he's a little bit of everything and man this guy is as positive as they get and he has a great outlook on life but he's going to tell us about each one of his near-death experiences and how it's benefited him in life yeah that's that's just amazing he also picks lottery numbers. Oh. He does remote viewing and he picks lottery numbers. Nice. He said he's won the California, I think he said it's the California, I can't remember what they called it. It's a, it's like a five number lottery. Mm-hmm. and But they've won it, he's won it like three times. Ugh. And he's hit the five numbers of the Powerball six numbers before. That's so, amazing. And he, he, he says that he can go to like Vegas Mm-hmm. And he can walk around and tell which slot machines are about to pay off by the energy that they give off. Dude, he needs to be my buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool. All right. So, Tracy, I think all of us will agree that any building that's mostly filled with politicians are probably creepy just for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't some, say that. You did. Some of the, these buildings, though, they have a haunted reputation as well. So, if you remember... We've covered the White House and the uh, Butte, Montana Courthouse. So uh-huh. there was a couple of the the buildings that we've covered, government buildings that had some some uh, spooky stuff going on. So I thought we would talk about another haunted government location, the Minnesota State Capitol Building. And here's a little quick history on it. We're going to focus more on the paranormal than the actual history. The Minnesota State Capitol Building is in St. Paul, Minnesota. And this is where the Minnesota Senate, the House of Representatives, the Attorney General's Office, and the governor are all based out of this one building. There's also a chamber for the Minnesota Supreme Court in there, but they don't use it very often. Most of that activity takes place in the Minnesota Judicial Center, which is uh, like right around the corner or next to it. It's in that same vicinity mm-hmm. of where it is. It is an absolutely beautiful building. It's got the big dome and everything on it. It kind of looks like the White House, for real. Yeah. So it's got that same kind of build. Uh, it was built in 1905 in an Italian Renaissance style. The state capitol building is actually the third to serve this purpose. The first state building was built in 1853, but it burned down in 1881. Then it was rebuilt on that same site in 1883, and then it was replaced in 1905 by this one at a different location. So the first two were on the same place, but this one's at a completely different place. The old one, the second one that was built, it actually was torn down in 1937. But it was there from 1883 until 1937. Hmm. Well, I mean, why'd they tear it down? Just because it just needed redone? I don't know. I would have thought they might have been able to use it for something else. But, yeah, definitely. But, like, well, they built the other one in 1905. Right. So it had been been there for, what, 22 years? or mm-hmm. It was a 32 years for yeah. whatever use they had it in. So, All right, let's jump into the paranormal stuff because... Like I said, there's a bunch of paranormal, and, and there's going to be some more history as we go. So even though it wasn't all up front, I felt in this case it would it would be better if we spoon-fed some of the history later when it corresponds. 
let's start with Chris Cowan's experience. Now, Chris was worked there for a while, and he said he had experienced a lot of strange things during his career in, in government and the media, but nothing like he experienced in the Minnesota State Capitol building. Now, his experience took place in 1998, and he said it was like nothing that he had ever felt before. He was convinced that he witnessed a ghost. He was in his office. It was up on the second floor that overlooked downtown St. Paul. At this time of his career, he was working in the Legislative Internal Communications Department. Try putting that on a shirt. (laughs) Sounds pretty important. (laughs) And so we mentioned that most of the Supreme Court action takes place in a different building. But this building in the early years, all the Supreme Court stuff took place here. It all took place in the workspace that he is actually in. Because at one point, this was just a giant room. It was huge. And it was super open. But now they've divided it up into a bunch of cubicles. Mm -hmm. So Cowan's got a little small office in there. It's got two doors. One led out of the office and into a long interior hallway. And the other door led to a larger room that had a few desks in it, some office supplies, and a coffee pot. It was during a late-night legislation session. It was right around 11 p.m., he thinks. Cowan said he was in his office all by himself. He thought he heard something in that bigger office. He got up. He walked to the door that led to that office, and he said the door was closed at the time, but it had one of those glass windows in it so he could see into, mm-hmm. into the room. He said he couldn't believe what he saw when he peeked in. According to Cowan... It was some white thing behind the door. He said it was in motion and it moved as he watched. He pushed the door open. He went in and whatever it was that he had seen had disappeared. Even though it was gone, he knew something was still a little bit strange. He said it felt like something that that he would akin to a cold breeze. Oh, so it really wasn't like a human... No, it was like a white blob, blob, mist, or whatever. He said he looked around for a second. He wondered what it could have been, what it was he was possibly feeling. And then he said he thought to himself, I'm getting the hell out of here. And he walked out and didn't look back. Like he never came back ever? No, he came back. He just not in that, that particular night. Okay. He said he never saw anything else during his time there. But in the in the following months that he was still employed, he did have feelings that would make him really weird, uh, leery about going back into that office, especially at nighttime. Oh, well, I don't blame him. He said he would just be in the office and get chills. He said he gets, still gets chills today even just talking about the situation. Uh-huh. Now, Chris Callen eventually moved on to Washington, D.C., and he's working in the news, uh, TV news production these days. Well, good for him. Yep. He was not the only one who had the feelings of being freaked out or had sightings. Over the years, different employees say that they have seen ghostly-type figures or have suspected that the Capitol building might be haunted. These sightings became so routine that discussions about eerie occurrences became commonplace. A former... Supreme Court Marshal reported seeing a murky form of a tall man in a dark suit lingering near a staircase and elevator. A cleaning woman was visibly shaken 
when she saw what she described as a white smoke that came rumbling through a doorway. It turned around, then went back through the doorway, slamming the door on its way out. <laughs> Imagine seeing that. Uh-uh. That'd be all right for me. We can just go <laughs> ahead and pass that up. A legislative aide said that he always had the feeling that he was being watched. And a retired director of the House of Representatives Public Information Office had some encounters with sightings of a ghostly man and the sounds of footsteps when no one else was around. So do each of these people know that they've all experienced this? or I think they all came at different times. Mm-hmm. So... You know, keep in mind, over since 1905, that place has been there. Yeah. And so I think they all came at different times, so I'm not really sure um, who knew about what mm-hmm. or each other's occurrences, I guess. Who could these spirits be that possibly haunt the halls of the Capitol building? Well, one spirit is suspected to be a long-departed Minnesota Supreme Court justice. Another is thought to be one of the building's original workers, and according to legend... He fell to his death from the Capitol's unique suspended stairwell. I want to see a picture of this thing. I haven't looked it up, but it's a, supposedly they've got this stairwell that I guess is like, I don't know, like like, like one of those like one of those bridges or something. I don't know. You know, oh. like those little bridges that are just yeah. in the air. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Creepy. I have to look it up. But it supposedly is unique, and, and this guy supposedly fell off of it. Why would died. you have such a thing? And in... I don't. I don't know, and I can't pass judgment without looking at it. Yeah, because it might right. make perfect sense once I see it. Mm-hmm. But the building has went through several different remodeling projects and restoration projects over the years, and the ghostly sightings may be starting to fade away a little bit, but the sightings of long-dead public servants and sudden cold breezes may never, ever completely go away. Probably not. So now we're going to... I breezed through some of those little things, but we're going to get into some details. Okay. We mentioned the Supreme Court Martial that saw the tall man... She was actually the daughter of a retired chief of justice of that same court. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of been around for a while. He probably went there with her dad when he was there and all that. She said that when she saw the tall man in that suit, he seemed to be beckoning her towards the elevator, but she has no clue why. Uh The cleaning woman, she said when she saw that smoke, oddly enough, it was one Friday the 13th. And two, she said that when the incident happened, she was actually just reaching for an extension cord while she was vacuuming. Mm-hmm. And as she bent down to get that, she said she saw something white come out of the door. That's when she turned around and looked at it and, and saw exactly that it was the mist. And obviously it turned around and slammed the door. She said that there are probably several different ghosts in the building because she's heard uh, rattling at doors during the nighttime on, on many different occasions. That would be so scary. I don't know if you could ever get used to that. Now, the aide that said that he felt like he was always being watched, he worked in the Far East Wing. He said he doesn't feel like the entity is frightening at all. According to him, the ghost is very mild-mannered. He said it seems to just be there out of curiosity. He thinks it actually adds a little character to the Capitol building, and he believes that he might have seen the ghost of a Supreme Court justice himself. It seems like there is an aura... Of, or of authority, kind of like that of justice. That's why he thinks that maybe it was a Supreme Court judge. Hmm. Some people think highly of the spirits. One is Lee Lambert. He's a retired director of the House of Representatives Public Information Office. 
Lambert spent 17 years working at the state capitol, and he's very open about the haunted side of the capitol building. He also believes that history is about people and their relationship to a specific place and time. He thinks this is a far more personal connection than what you might find in books or mortar alone. So, makes sense. Lambert felt that he was much more open to the capital paranormal side due to the fact that he had had some paranormal experiences as a younger man in New York City. Not only did he have some paranormal encounters in the Capitol building, but he has a developed a philosophy about who may be haunted in the Capitol building and why. Okay. He thinks that the reason that these spirits or entities are at the Capitol is because it's a place that they loved and they see it somehow as still theirs. He said they didn't want to move on or they didn't go anywhere else for whatever reason. Maybe they're trapped. He said maybe they couldn't find their way out. He thinks it connects the past to some kind of history with the structure there. He pointed out that sometimes ghosts are outside in wide open spaces, but more often than not, they are enclosed in spaces such as an office building or a house, almost as if they're trapped. I mean, that's so weird. How come they can't figure out how to get out? Right. They can do all this stuff, but they can't get out of the wall. Walk through a wall. You can't walk through the wall to outside. Right. Like they can only walk through interior walls. (laughs) Lambert grew up in a town that's kind of known for paranormal uh, reasons. You might know it. Amityville, New York. (laughs) (laughs) But Lambert is a well-educated man. He studied at Harvard and Hampton College in Virginia, as well as the University of Munich over in Germany. He had his first paranormal encounter while he was working for Time Life Books. Do you remember those? The I Time do remember Life Books? those, yes. They would be the ones that would be like, uh, they would teach you how to do everything. Like some of them would be on just learning stuff, but other ones would be like how to fix your car or mm-hmm. how to fix your garbage disposal. Yep. I couldn't imagine. I mean, do you imagine, honey, the garbage disposal's broke. That's okay, I'll fix it with volume 17 of how to fix your garbage disposal. I mean, that seems like forever ago. Yeah. And if that don't work, you can use, you know, edition 18, how to eat with a bloody stump. I don't know. <laughs> so anyways, he uh, he had his first encounter when he was, he was a researcher and a writer for Time Life Books. He lived in New York on the second floor above an old remodeled fire station. Oh, that'd be kind of fun. Yeah. And uh, it just happened to be right around the corner from the Chelsea Hotel, which we've also done a story on. Mm -hmm. So that whole area is probably messed up, paranormal-wise, anyway. So anyways, this happened in the 1960s. Now, there was a first-floor apartment. It was vacant. And then there was an apartment above him on the third floor, and it was rented by another tenant. Lambert said he didn't know anything about the history of the building when he moved in. He just remembers that one night he had a friend that was going to come by and stop by after work or when he got off work, and and Lambert said he got off work a little bit early. So he got home, and he decided he was going to take a little bit of a nap. Mm -hmm. It was an old fire station, so as soon as you walk in the door, he said there's a staircase straight up to the second floor. Each floor had a separate landing for each apartment. Obviously, you can think about it being a firehouse. It would be set up like that. He said when visitors got to his apartment, they would have to follow along a railing that was around the stairwell to his main apartment door. So what he did was he left, since his friend was coming, he left the street door open. And then he also left his, left his apartment door open so his friend could just come on in. Yeah. 
He said, if you walk directly into his apartment, there was a very small bedroom. If you turn right, there was a bathroom. You went through the bathroom and you ended up in the kitchen. And then on the other side of the kitchen was a bigger bedroom. Okay. He decided that he was going to sleep in a small bedroom, so when his buddy came in, it would be right there with an eyesight. His friend, though, had a very unsettling experience. His friend told him that he came up the stairs, he followed the railing, and he saw Lambert standing in the doorway of his apartment. Now, this was only about 20 feet away from where the guy would have been standing. Mm -hmm. He said by the time he got to Lambert's front door, he was gone. He was just standing there at the door. By the time he got there, he was gone. So his friend assumed that he went through the, the bathroom and into the kitchen since he didn't see him. But then he noticed him in the bed asleep. And he goes in there and wakes him up, and he, and, and he tells him the situation. And his friend assumed that he was playing a trick on him. Mm-hmm. He must have went yeah. around and all that. And then, and then, But Lambert's like... Dude, there's no possible way I could have, in the time that it took you to walk 20 feet to get the door, that I could have went all the way around and been here and sound asleep. When you came on me, I was sound asleep. Mm-hmm. I'm not faking it. And uh, he said, well, then you must have a ghost or something, because I know I saw somebody standing at that door. Here was, here was Lambert's first actual experience. This happened a short time later. He said that he was going to have a dinner party. And he had only planned on 10 people being there. He invited nine people and himself. He said he had this big oriental table, you know, the ones that you sit on the floor instead of using chairs. And that's the way they were going to use it. So everybody's there. They're having a good time. He says he looks at the people. He counts to see how many people's there. There's 10 people. And then he starts to go get the dishes. And he's like, well, wait a minute. I didn't count myself. Oh, (laughs) so that's 11 people. (laughs) <laughs> so let me go back. So he goes back again. He counts. Ten people. He's like, okay, I must have invited Somebody, 11 and not yeah. realize that I invited 10. Thought I really... So he goes in and gets 11 plates. He goes in and he goes to set them all out. And he's got an extra one. He counts again. Now there's only 10 people counting him. And he said, you know, he knew everybody that he invited pretty well. But when he was counting, he wasn't looking at faces. He was just counting yeah. person, 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 person. So he doesn't know who the extra person was, but that extra person was there twice and wasn't there. And then he thought about his friend's experience of another person mm-hmm. being at that door that they couldn't find. So thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, so nobody nobody else saw it, I guess, right. and said, hey, why are you sending this extra plate out? Right. So That's, that's pretty wild. So anyways, he was confused about it. And he, he didn't really know what to think of it, but that was his first real experience that he ever felt with something that he thought was paranormal. So Lambert lived in this apartment for two years before he moved to Germany to study art at the University of Munich. Before he moved, though, he did have a third incident. He had a, uh, a big party, and he said the, the apartment was full of people, full. He said it was your typical 1960s party. The lights were all low, candles were lit everywhere. He said one of his friends walked over at one point and said, who's that guy that's sitting over there on the stereo console? Mm-hmm. And he said he looked over in the area and he said that there was a guy there and, and he was dressed kind of like everybody else. He seemed to fit in. And uh, he said he wasn't sure, but it, it's dark. You can't really see who it is. So he can't make that judgment. 
But he also knew it was pretty rude to be sitting on somebody's stereo console. Well, yeah. So Lambert walks over, but there's a crowd, so he's trying to fight his way through the crowd. By the time he gets over, he said the guy wasn't there, and he searched all over the apartment, and he never could find the guy again. Man. Well, at least he wasn't the only one that saw it this time. No, that's true. He did think it was very odd, though. Very odd. Lee Lambert moved to Minnesota in 1974. He took a job with the Urban League. Six years later, he joined the African American Cultural Center, and he tried to raise money and everything for a museum they were going to do. They couldn't get the funds together, so unfortunately, the museum was never built. Didn't happen, huh? No, he put some time into it, though. And he eventually made his way to the legislature where he was there until 2003. Along the way, he became somewhat of an expert on the Capitol ghosts. He said he had heard about the ghost of the man who died from falling off of the staircase. He had also heard about the elderly tall man that the court assistant, the, old, the, the marshal, had seen. And he even heard about Chris Kalman's experience of that entity that was up there behind the door. What he hadn't heard of was the entity that he would soon encounter. <laughs> his incident was on the second floor. It was in the same vicinity where Chris uh, uh, Kalman saw his or had his encounter. He said his office was a former Supreme Court justice's office. His office, much like Cowan's, connected to a larger office, and that larger office was used as a storeroom, and it had a coffee pot, water cooler, and a small snack bar. He went in there one, one day to get some coffee. He said he was facing east, was his back to the door that he had just came through from his office. In the corner, he noticed some movement. When he turned to face it, it was a hazy form, kind of wispy, that went across the room and out the door into the hallway. He said it wasn't a human shape. It was more of a wispy, smoky shape. He said it was grayish, though. It definitely was not white, like the, uh, the maid had experience or the housekeeper. He said it was very thin and almost as high as the room itself. Oh, dang. He said it wasn't moving very fast because he definitely had plenty of time to, to get a good look at mm-hmm. it and, and, and focus on what it was. He mentioned the incident to his assistant. And the assistant said that he had never told anyone else before this, but he had always felt a presence in the office like something was there. So it must be true. Yeah. Lambert remembered uh, they were doing some remodeling soon of their office. That whole floor was being remodeled. And he said that him and his assistant decided that they were going to go up there and check on the progress. He said there was dust everywhere. They had the plastic up, you know, mm-hmm. like they do when you... So he said there was nothing except bare walls, basically up there. He said all the workers had went home for the evening, so they were the only two upstairs on that floor. He said they walked past the door to their office, and it was open. They walked past it. They go to the conference room. When they walked to come back, they noticed that the door was now closed. Nobody there except for them two. There's no drafts. And he said, keep in mind, these were very old, heavy oak doors. And with nobody up there to shut them, Something had happened. He said also they had both noticed that the temperature suddenly had dropped significantly. It felt like there was a presence there. It just felt different, according to him. He said, you know how there's a group of people in a room arguing and debating, and uh, you can just, like, feel the tension in the air? Yeah. He said that's what it felt like. It felt like tension in the air for no reason whatsoever. Okay, so... We mentioned the ghost of a possible Supreme Court justice. 
Lambert thinks this is possibly a justice by the name of Justice Brown, who was a member of the court from 1909 until 1913 when he passed away. When Lambert left the Capitol, he didn't leave all the spirits behind, apparently. Shortly after he left, his longtime friend David suddenly passed away. Oh. He said David remained a part of his life. He said David exists, I know for a fact, because he comes and he goes all the time. He said, I consider him a guardian angel. I think he protects me. That's nice. And that's the story we got for the haunted Minnesota State Capitol. That's nice. A lot of cool stuff going on there. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. All right, Tracy. So we are going to take a quick break from our sponsor. And then we're going to come back with the iTunes reviews and stuff and that awesome conversation with David Wallace. All right. Sounds good, babe. All right, Tracy, quick housekeeping. We obviously have uh, a bunch of live shows still going on. I think we mentioned uh, last week we're down to, I think, 16 tickets for St. Augustine in September. Us and History Goes Bump. And uh, if you want to jump in on that, jump in. And they still have rooms available, too, at the location. Go to our website, and when you click on the uh, link on our shows for the St. Augustine, I've got a, uh, the phone number and everything there. So you can go get a uh, room at Beecher's and be right there on the beach and hang out for a day or two. Sounds fun. I'm yeah. so ready. And on that wise, we were able to add a, some more tickets for the St. Augustine investigation oh. of the lighthouse. That's good. Uh, yeah, because we had we only had 30 tickets available, and, and I think they got it up to 50 now. Oh, dang. So... Wow. Well, we sold almost all of them except yeah. for like two. So there's still, there's about 20 tickets available now. So well, that's wonderful. also there's a link to that on our, mm-hmm. our website. And then obviously we've got Dallas. So we've got, uh, where else we got? Memphis, mm-hmm. Bobby Mackey's and uh, Galveston. Sounds great. So go, go snag you some tickets. The cruise is doing great. I just got an update yesterday. We're up to 166, 167 people and uh, right at 80 cabins booked. So that's amazing. You guys are awesome. Yeah. All right. What do we got, Tracy, as far as uh, iTunes reviews and Patreon? Um, We have Go Jimmer, Men Pen Scarlet, Nate8180, Penguin Chick 420, and Mojo Lobster. Thank you guys for your really awesome reviews. They were so, so nice. And we appreciate them more than you'll ever know. And our Patreon this week was Kneezy Knees. Neasy knees. (laughs) knees. Yeah. Thank you so much, honey, for supporting us. We appreciate y'all so much. Yeah, fantastic. Now, let's jump right into this, because this one's like an hour and 15 minutes long, but trust me, it's not going to seem like it. Mm -hmm. He is so phenomenal to talk to. We've been very blessed with some good people recently that are very uh, inspirational. George Shoplin, Uh uh, the same way, and we've got more coming up, but uh, I think you're going to really like David Wallace. Hey guys, welcome back to Hillbilly Horror Stories, and I'm excited because this next guest was a complete accident as far as me coming across, but it's one of those happy accidents, as Bob Ross would say. So I've got uh, with me tonight, I've got David Wallace from uh, out in Hawaii. David, thank you for taking some time. Aloha. Well, All right, thank so, you for inviting me. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm so glad to do this. So what happened? Let me tell you how this started. 
uh, I was researching near-death experiences. Uh, we, okay. Dave, we do two different things here on the show. We have an uh, the audio podcast, and so we do a full-length episode where we talk about all these different haunted places, and uh, like this past episode we did was on shared death experiences, and we covered some of those. Well, yeah. I also do a small video series that's a little more scripted, uh, it's an eight or nine minute video. And we, I was doing a near death experience for that. So as I was looking at these experiences, I ran across one of your experiences that you had written an article on. And I was like, man, I'd like to use that. Maybe I'll write him and see if I can use this. And then I thought, you know what, maybe I'll write him and see if I can get him on because I started doing a little research on you and saw all these different things. So you are an author, a remote viewer, a Reiki master, psychic life coach and medical intuitive when i see all that and then i see that you had not one near-death experience that i had seen originally you have four near-death experiences that you put in the book uh that that came out the journey of our souls uh so we're going to tell people how they can get that book a little bit later and you're going to tell us about some of the near-death experiences or, or all four a little bit about each one uh coming up so I'm excited to get into this. I have a couple of questions about some of the things that are listed uh, on your, your bio. First of all, okay. your remote viewer, I think that's really cool. How did, how did you realize that you had the ability of being a re remote viewer and how do you use that in your everyday life or do you use it in your everyday life? Uh, it started when I was a little uh, little kid soon after that accident that I talked about, my near-death experience. And um, I discovered that if I focus on things that I'm curious about, that somebody's trying to hide from me, I can see the... In fact, um, when I was a kid, um, anytime somebody gave me a present um, or a gift wrapped in a box or whatever, if I just focus on them, I can see what's inside already. In fact, Christmas time, um, I used to arrange my gifts <laughs> according to, you know, uh, my parents would give me clothes. I, I, looking into the gifts, I can see the clothes. So I stack all of the clothes, gifts on one side, then the books all here and the school supplies, all of the boring stuff. And then... <laughs> The toys, my favorite toys, I stack them all the way to the right. And so I start off with the clothes and work my way down. And I used to drive my parents nuts <laughs> because I already knew what was inside. And uh, I used to spoil a lot of people's um, surprise when they're opening up their presents because I used to tell them what was inside. <laughs> so... So this is something that I had since I was a child. I could see things and uh, sense things. And uh, as an adult, uh, you know, when you're growing up and um, people get really irritated at you <laughs> because uh, you know things before, you know, things happen. And so uh, as a child and a young man, I learned to suppress it put it aside because of, um, you know, I, I didn't want to feel like the oddball. I was the oddball. <laughs> and eventually I got um, 
old enough where soon I didn't care what people thought about me. <laughs> um, and so I decided to um, take advantage and learn how to use this ability. And one thing about natural abilities, um, if you depending on natural abilities to help you, natural abilities can come and go, they fluctuate, yeah? So you have peak times, you have valley times. And what I found out is uh, if you add discipline into your natural gifts, you can do it on demand. And that's what um, training as a remote viewer, uh, I was able to do, um, add discipline to this natural ability. And now I do it uh, on demand. And some of the things that I do every day is um, I use my ability to look at lottery numbers. <laughs> um, I'm a professional um, precog viewer uh, for uh, financial markets, predicting the markets, whether they're going to go up or down. So that's how I use my natural talent that's been um, shaped and formed and uh, partnered with remote viewing that uh, I continue to do that today. <laughs> now, now, when you say like with the lottery numbers, walk me through how this goes. Do you, do you physically like put yourself in when they're drawing the numbers and, and kind of see it like that? Or how, do, how does it come to you? The, the method of, uh, the method that I use to go after lottery numbers are pictures and it's um, associations and it's called the associative remote viewing and in associative remote viewing we have certain symbols i have 70 different sketches or pictures each one of them representing numbers one through 70 and that's for the powerball and the mega million <laughs> so um any one of those pictures um, they, each picture represents a number. So when I sit and focus on the lottery, uh, for example, I just got through working the mega million for tomorrow. And so when I sit and work on the lottery, I project my mind into the future tomorrow. After the lottery is drawn, I'll be looking at the numbers and each of the winning numbers, I'm gonna be drawing a picture that represents the number. For example, number five, five is a glove. Say hey. Makes sense. Okay. Um, and number four is a car, <laughs> four wheels on a car. Three is a tricycle, <laughs> you know? So all of these symbols have uh, meaning to me. So after I get the pictures and uh, projecting my mind into the features and asking myself at the end of the lottery, what are the six pictures I'm gonna be drawing in these spaces on my sheets of paper? And that's how I work the lottery. And uh, last week, Saturday for the Powerball, I hit five of the six numbers. Oh, wow. So um, it's been producing, um, pretty consistent 
um, sets of numbers, anywhere from three to four numbers, sometimes five numbers. I've um, identified all six several times. <laughs> it's just trying to get them on the same ticket. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be scattered all over here. Um, but, um, you know, so that's the challenge. Um, and when, when I do the lottery, it's a, for me, it's a exercise in um, my mind. It's a mental exercise in testing my abilities. And uh, that seems to be more important <laughs> uh, at this time. Now, it also says you're a Reiki master. Now, I've always, uh, I was speaking with you a little bit earlier. I, I, I know I've seen the term so many times. I have a vague idea of, of <laughs> kind of what it is. But can you break down for us what Reiki is for those of us that aren't as familiar with uh, that phenomenon? Yeah, Reiki basically means uh, universal energy. Okay. Um and there's several cultures that have this concept of a universal force out there. Um, when the Jedi Knights refer to the force, um, it's very similar to Reiki, um, you know, references to uh, Reiki energy. So Reiki energy is a collective energy um, in the universe that's comprised of all living and non-living um, energies that we have and um, these energies are present out there and they can be used to do many different things not only heal but also um, help you develop your mind your thinking and becomes a way of life and uh, you know one of one of my favorite teachings in reiki is dealing with the now uh, there's a set of uh, things that start off just for today, I will be. So there's a focus on now. And so uh, being a better person today. <laughs> so, that makes sense. Yeah. And so uh, we take the, as Reiki practitioners, we're trained to um, use the energy around us that's provided in nature uh, to help heal other people. Um, you can also, um, because this energy is alive and uh, contains information, if you know how to read the information um, in this energy around you, you become aware of everything around you and you become attached um, you become aware of the interconnection of everything in our environment. So we're not alone, we're all interconnected. When it comes to being a medical intuitive, uh -huh. what, do, what does that involve? What would be the proper definition for that? A medical intuitive is a person that uses uh, extra senses, extra sensory perception, or any type of non-traditional um, methods to determine what's happening inside of a human body. Uh, for me, 
uh, using Reiki, I can just sense um, if a person is well or a person is sick. And as a Reiki uh, practitioner, when we work on people that are sick, they draw on our energy. There's pulling on our energy. Okay. So um, when I go to Costco <laughs> shopping <laughs> and I'm walking around with my wife and um, I let my guard down, I can feel people who are sick drawing their energy from me and pulling. And sometimes I have to stop and look around and identify, okay, who's doing that? You know, somebody's really ill. So um, that's the way energy communicates. Uh, where there's plenty energy, it will move to um, places where there's not enough energy. So there's kind of like a push and pull going on. So an empty uh, empty energy here, it, it attracts energy to it. So there's a pulling. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's uh, how I'm able to read if a person is well or not. If a person is well, their energy is fine. We exchange energy. There's no pull. In fact, sometimes there's push away saying, I have enough energy. I don't need any more from you. <laughs> so, and so... Um, that's part of the uh, medical intuit, uh, intuition where being aware of whether a person is sick or well. Second part of uh, the medical intuition that I do is having the ability to see inside the human body and recognizing and being able to describe you know, the joints, the muscles, the different parts of the body that is uh, not functioning well. And so um, it's not really, you cannot use the word diagnosis because that's a medical, you know, we're not doctors, but we're describing something that's inside the body that's happening that's not working right. And so, We try and explain it in plain language (laughs) so we're not confused with doctors, yeah. Well, you know, and and, and I'm going to say this, and it's not in any disrespect, but I know it's kind of be similar, but, you know, they train certain animals uh, with people to be able to know that if somebody's blood sugar drops, that a dog might be able to tell it or something like that, which I'm sure some of that might have to do with sense of smell or or something like that that we can't pick up as humans. But, you know, there are animals that can tell when people are sick and, and what level of sickness it is. So it doesn't really surprise me that there are some humans that have that ability as well. Yeah. Uh, service dogs are trained uh, to recognize when a person is about to go into an epileptic, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a seizure. So um, those service animals, uh, they're working on the energy and the odors, for me, there are certain um, illnesses that I can sense by smell. The odor of the person, when I'm talking to the person, the the odor of their breath, the odor of their body. Um, When I smell certain, um, detect certain odors on a person, I know exactly what's happening to them. 
Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about how you came about these abilities. So you had an accident when you were about five years old. There was a head injury caused in the accident. I believe this led to your first near-death experience. Tell me a little bit about what happened back then. Yeah, my brother and I were playing in a car. <laughs> and in the old days, there were no seat belts. <laughs> so, um, in fact, the car was a big DeSoto. Oh, and wow. uh, <laughs> the car doors open outwards. And um, we were playing in the back. And he kicked me from one side of the car. And I ended up on the opposite side of the car. And I reached out and I grabbed the handle. And it yanked me out. The door opened. And I fell right on the asphalt and I was out. The next thing I remember, actually the first thing I remember after falling was kind of like being separated and hovering over my body and looking down at myself like I was looking into a mirror. And I, I couldn't understand what was going on until I looked to the side and I, um, you know, the astral plane, the next, um, when, when, when your spirit and you look around in this plane, it doesn't look the same. It's different. It's very different. It's brighter, more vibrant. There's things around that uh, was kind of like scaring me a bit. And uh, I tried to wake myself up uh, because I saw myself lying down. And my brother came uh, the car stopped and my brother came running and he was crying, trying to wake me up. And I was trying to wake myself up. And when I pulled away and I noticed uh, I was out of my body, it made me very scared. And uh, there were things around me and I felt like this pool. I was being yanked somewhere and I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave my body. And right when I was the most scared, I felt something reach around me. And when I looked, it was a human hand. And it pulled me into him. And uh, I say him because when I look back, there's a big man <laughs> standing behind me. And he took me and we kind of like covered uh, we rose above the road and I was able to see and look down and I saw more people gathering. Um, and then in a split second, we were speeding through space. Uh, it reminds me of um, this motion that was going around me when I was being carried away. Uh, reminds me of the movie when Star Trek hit the button and they're in what drive? <laughs> oh, yeah. <Warp laughs> the lights going. Um, very similar to that, but um, you don't realize how fast you're traveling. Um, it's kind of like slow motion in a way. And uh, this man kept on um, holding me tight and uh, he knew I was scared, so he kind of looked at me, and uh, I looked at, uh, back up at him, and there was a calming um, feeling that was coming from him, like, you know, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. 
And he took me to a room. And in this room was a small room. And in fact, it reminded me of a, a little booth, <laughs> a security booth, it's really small, just enough to fit probably about four adults. But the booth itself, um, there, there was floor like a cement. And when I looked up, um, there's no roof, but uh, the room went way up and there was a light coming down from the top. And as the light bathed us, uh, you know, contacted me, I felt safe. It was okay. It was okay to be there. And so that's, um, I was told by this man later that um, I was curious, I, I thought I was in heaven. And so when I asked him, uh, you know, am I in heaven? He says, no, you're not. Uh, this is just a safe place that we're keeping you until your body is ready for you. And uh, it was not heaven, it was a place in between. <laughs> what, so at what point in time did you, I guess, physically, or I should say uh, spiritually, decide to enter back into your body? How long had passed uh, when you awoke, awoken from your uh, incident? See, for me, for me inside the room, it seems like I was there for hours, for a long time, because uh, we were talking about different things. Um, he was explaining about my name. I got to see the people that was beyond the room. So for me, in the room, it seemed like I was there for a long time. But when I finally woke up, I realized I was gone for less than probably like um, 10 minutes or so. Hmm. Really short time here, um, here on Earth because um, when I woke up, I was being uh, taken into the hospital on a gurney. And uh, the pain, the first thing I remind is the pain in my head. Oh, it was, it was really sore and uh, dizzy and uh, nauseous and stuff because uh, I wanted to throw up. And so to drive from the accident scene to the hospital would probably take us um, about five minutes. You know, we were really close to uh, the hospital. So all of that happened in a really short time. So did you go to the hospital by ambulance or did your parents just like scoop you up and put you back in the car? <laughs> no, they put us back in a car <laughs> and zipped us in. <laughs> and uh, when, what I was told is uh, when I got there, my head was wrapped in, uh, I believe, um, my brother's shirt or something, but uh, they had my head wrapped up. And uh, when I, when they came, somebody had called uh, the hospital and told us that we were coming there. So by the time I got there, uh, there were nurses uh, with a gurney. They put me on a gurney. And it's this movement from the car being placed onto the gurney is when I uh, woke up and um, there was a transition period where um, I was in the room with my 
protector um, in, in this small room. And I felt tired, like I wanted to fall asleep. And so he cuddled me and I kind of nudged down, um, laid down in his arms. And it seemed like I just had fallen asleep and I felt myself falling again, like falling backwards. And that's when I woke up on the gurney. Wow. So how long after the accident and this trip to the hospital did you start realizing that you had some abilities? <laughs> Second night there. <laughs> you see, uh, the children's hospital that I was in, uh, actually the children's ward is a big open room and uh, they had multiple beds in there and there are a lot of kids. Well, <clears throat> when this accident happened, uh, there was some kind of virus or um, you know, disease that was going on and a lot of kids were getting sick. So when I went in, um, all of the beds were full and there are a lot of sick uh, oh, kids who were ill, <laughs> okay? And so they were, uh, it, some of them were so ill that there are tents kind of like built over them for isolation and they're kept away. But um, on the second night there, um, I was having a really hard time sleeping and my head was just pounding. And so um, I stayed up most of the night and early in the morning after the last uh, nurse kind of like uh, made, the, made their rounds, I started staring at the ceiling and the ceiling started to kind of like oscillate, wave, and it looked like jello shaking. And then the ceiling opened up. And after the ceiling opened up, I saw people dressed in white coming down and coming entering the room. And there are a lot of them. Um, you know, there are a lot of these people coming down and they were, uh, I call them angels, okay? But they're angelic in, in appearance and I knew they were different. And so they went around all of us that were sick and they started um, petting our head, putting their hands on the bodies. And everywhere these uh, beings went, you could see the kids all of a sudden relax. They were sleeping, <coughs> excuse me. They're sleeping, and when the angels put their hands on, on these little kids, they started snoring. <laughs> but all these kids started to, um, you know, being administered by these uh, angels. In fact, uh, two of the angels came to me, and one of them placed their hands on, the head, on my head and my heart. And they, uh, I could feel warmth in their hands. It's almost like me giving people Reiki. But after they were done and they left the same way through opening in the ceiling, the ceiling closed, um, 
couple days later, a lot of these kids that were really seriously ill, they got better. They got well. So um, that was my first experience uh, seeing, you know, other creatures besides uh, besides my guardian. And uh, so, <laughs> yeah, starting from my second night in the hospital. What did the angels look like? Did they? Did you have a really clear look at features, or were they more kind of? Uh, more like a nondescript type person that you really couldn't make features out or what, what, what would your best uh, shot at describing them be? They look, um, <laughs> how can I put this? Uh, they look gender neutral. Okay. Uh, gender neutral, their hair, uh, we're long, but um, you couldn't tell if they're male or female. And it's just that they're human-like, uh, human in appearance. Um, they have no wings. <laughs> it's just that around them, uh, there's this light, you know, that, that made them shine and glow. And um, they were very, very... Uh, focused on what they were doing. Uh, they showed little emotion, really. Uh, to them, it was like a, a job that they were set to do and like a mission that they needed to carry out. So they're focused on what they needed to do. And uh, they weren't there to talk story or play. Are you familiar with the story of the Copeville miracle that happened in the 1980s in uh, Wyoming? No. That uh, I won't go into much detail. It'd be something I think you might find fascinating. But we we did this story a, a while back. Basically, a man and his wife, and the man was mentally ill, uh, had some issues with a brand new school that had opened up roughly, and uh, he he came into the school with a bomb and gathered all the kids and teachers, put them in one room. And the long story short, the bomb ended up going off, but the only people who were killed or seriously injured was he and his wife even though 150 some people were in one room all gathered together. But the reason I bring this up is because all the children after this started describing seeing something similar to what you did. They saw uh, the ceiling open up. They saw what they deemed to be angels come in. There's even a, a picture of what looks like an angel stereotypical angel with the wings and everything burnt onto one of the walls where the blast wow. happened, but the, the bomb was in the middle of the room and it went straight up and the bomb uh, expert said that he, there's no reason in the world it should have went straight up, but these kids described all at separate times that these uh, beings came down and they held hands around the bomb Surrounded and then when it when it went off it went straight up and then they left the same way up through that area and so very similar to what you said and i, I just kind of thought that was amazing that that description of <laughs> the ceiling opening up and them coming down so yeah if you get a chance to check that out i think you'd be fascinated by that story it's pretty awesome so yeah. well this was 1958 yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and, uh, you know, these angels, um, 
as a kid, I used to catch every bug that came on our island. And so I was in a hospital a lot. And these angels kept on coming back. Um, so one of my friends, uh, you know, a couple years later, uh, after this particular incident, I was in a hospital for intestinal flu. And one of my friends um, burned himself really bad. Um, you know, a large part of his body was burned. And his first night there, the angels came to administer. And this time, uh, almost all of the angels that came through the ceiling surrounded him because they knew uh, the injuries that he suffered was life-threatening. And so they were sent to basically um, make sure that this child would heal. And after he was administered by these angels, he started recovering really well. So um, a lot of times when people get um, that seriously burned, they go into shock and the body shut down. He did it, so he survived. Hey, why do you think that, let's, let's take that scenario. Why do you think that there would be angels or beings of that type that would come down and, and help in the healing process of some children uh, or adults, but not in others? Or, or, you know, so you take his situation where he was badly burned and a lot of times that would result in death. There are certain times where it would result in death. What do you think is the difference in the ones that result in death and the ones like that situation where there's a little bit of uh, an outside healing? Do you even have a guess as to why that would be? I believe it's the faith of the parents. I believe it's the faith of the parents and the family um, of this young man. Um, they summoned uh, God's help to come. And they had the faith. Uh, my island, Molokai, uh, is known for, uh, well, the island I grew up on, <laughs> it's not my island, <laughs> but the <laughs> island I grew up on <laughs> um, is, has this tradition on, uh, of spiritual um, roots that are very, very strong. The prayers of the Molokai people are answered. So they call it the uh, Molokai Pule O'o. And Pule O'o is when a prayer bears fruit. So I strongly believe that the family of this young man had the faith to summon uh, God and God agreed with them to send the angels to heal him. Um, Sometimes we also have missions that we need to accomplish. And if you take a look at um, me, <laughs> um, a lot of the challenges that I faced uh, growing up, I should have been dead several times. <laughs> but for some reason, I was preserved um, so that I can share some of my experiences with other people. and. Um, in times that we live right now, we need stories of hope. Yeah. I agree. Um, especially now in you know pandemic and stuff like that. Uh, 
We need people to spread hope that there is something good waiting for uh, for you. And uh, so that's um, why I believe that many people are spared um, in that situation and stuff, uh, the family. The family is very strong. You mentioned people needing hope, and it's it's funny you said that because I, I told you the story we did last night was on shared death experiences. Ah. And I made the comment on the show that it may be, we've been doing this for five years, every week for five years. I made the the acknowledgement that this may have been the most fun and and enlightening episode that I've ever done. And we've done ones on near death. We've done ones on reincarnation, past lives. And all of those are very encouraging. But something about this one just... I just really enjoyed researching it. And I think a lot of it is because of the hope aspect, like you just said. So yeah, your stories like yours definitely, I think, bring about hope. Now I will say, I'm not an expert by any means on near death. Uh, I've done enough research to get by a couple of episodes, but not in depth, like somebody who makes it their life, you know, long study or anything like that. i I, I was curious when I saw your story, and then when I saw you had four near-death experiences, that was the first time that I can remember seeing anybody that had more than one, uh, and you'd had four, and I knew about this one, the first one, because I'd read the story on it. Can you go into a little bit about what happened these other three times, what period of life uh, you were in when these things happened, and uh, and what the differences were, if there were any? Sure. Um, a lot of people, when they have uh, near-death experiences, uh, they talk about um, going into a tunnel, um, a long tunnel, and coming. Uh, there's something at the end of the tunnel waiting for them. And a lot of time, this um, this uh, thing waiting for them at the end is something like heaven. And out of my four near-death experiences, the second one is very similar to that. Um, in fact, the second one uh, took place, I believe in uh, 1978, and uh, I had developed double pneumonia. Both chests were just filled with uh, phlegm and uh, I had high fever and I was really, really sick. And so um, I, don't like taking medicine. <laughs> I don't like taking medicine. So I was trying to do this, uh, just drinking water and trying to keep my chest uh, open, but my fever was just running, running really high. And so um, this one particular night, I had stayed on from work and I went to bed and I told my wife at the time, I said, you know what? If I go to bed tonight, I'm not too sure if I'm going to wake up. I, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> and she looked at me, ah, stop talking like that, you know. <laughs> so I went in and I closed the door and I fell asleep. And I was in a sound sleep. And early in the morning, I felt someone pulling at my feet, <laughs> it, you know, I'm sleeping and somebody's pulling at my feet, at my toes, and I kick, 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 and I wake up, I jump out of, uh, and sit up in bed, and I look at the, 
foot of my bed, and there's my friend who had died <laughs> about a year before. Oh, that's not good. Okay? And his name was Bruce. And Bruce was there looking at me and, uh, you know, it didn't dawn on me that this guy was dead <laughs> and not supposed to be there. Right. But I, uh, <laughs> I jumped out of bed and I hugged him and uh, it was a really good reunion. We were really good friends. And so I started hugging him and um, then I realized, oh, Bruce, he died. <laughs> and he started laughing at me and um, I says, what does this mean? I'm dead too? And right on then, I noticed he kind of like shift me around where um, I had uh, my back faced towards the bed. And when he did that, I knew he didn't want me to see something. So I turned around and I saw my body lying in bed next to my wife. And so I uh, crumpled down on the floor and started crying. Uh, oh, I did <laughs> so and he's looking at me and he's laughing he says david shot stop it you're not dead he says then why are you here you came to take me he says no 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 nothing like that i wanted to show you something what awaits you if you're willing to go and so he took me and uh walked from the edge of the, uh, from the end of the bed and we walked around the bed and right next to our bed there's a closet and he opened the closet slid it open and i looked inside and he opened uh parted the clothes and when the clothes parted there was a hole in the closet like a cave and I knelt down and I looked inside and this hole was a gigantic hole enough for us to fit through and was dark. And at the end of the tunnel, at the end of that uh, tunnel was a tiny speck of light. So he says, this is what I wanted to show you. And I says, um, where does it go? Says, the only way you can find out is you got to come and trust me. So he grabbed my hand and we both walked inside uh, the tunnel and we started walking the tunnel. And Bruce had died. He had left four children. And while we were walking through, he started talking about his children and his wife. And I started to answer you know, his questions he had about them and uh, he was very concerned uh, about his family. And so I was able to comfort him in a way, say, hey, they're fine, they're okay. And so as we continued walking, uh, the light, uh, the tunnel began to twist and turn. And at the very end, uh, when we came to the end, there was like a film, like a uh, membrane and I stood at this membrane and started looking at the other side. And what I saw was a landscape that was beautiful. The colors, the grass, the trees, and everything was so vibrant and alive. And in fact, um, the energy there 
was just amazing. It made me feel loved and wanted. And I looked at Bruce and he says, well, this is, um, you know, your destination if you want. And so while I stood there, I noticed a group of people started to come uh, towards the membrane and walk up close to us. And as they got closer, I recognized my grandfather, my grandma, all of these ancestors that had passed away that I knew. They were right on the front line, uncles and aunties that had passed away that I knew. They were there, they were waiting for me and they were saying, come, come, come true. The most exciting thing is besides having humans there, I saw my pets, my dogs, <laughs> guinea pigs, rabbits, pigeons, <laughs> all coming rushing uh, towards the membrane. And they're just on the uh, other side of the membrane where I can reach and pet them. And I call them by names. I know all of their names. And I'm over there crying like a baby. <laughs> Says, oh, you feel beautiful, you know? And um, so I look at the uh, membrane and I stick my hand through and I started to walk through the membrane. And right when I start to um, make a dent into the membrane, I looked into the crowd of my ancestors and I saw my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, standing in the back and he's looking at me like, shaking his head, no. And so I stopped right where I was and I felt the hand on my chest pull me out of the memory. My friend, Bruce, helped me remove myself from the memory. And I started crying and I says, you know, I, I wanna go, but I cannot. And um, Bruce asked me why. I said, cannot. And <laughs> right then, I heard the voice of my daughter. Uh, she was probably about three or four years old. And she started calling, Daddy, where are you? Daddy. And hearing my daughter's voice and seeing my grandfather say, no, <laughs> I said, I can't go. I can't make this transition right now. So my friend Bruce hugged me and um, whispered in my ear and he says, you know what, Dave, I wish I had made the same decision you are making right now. So we had the choice yeah, of either going and staying there or turning around and going back home. He decided to go. I decided to take care of my family. Do you think everybody gets that choice or do you think it's just certain situations? Certain situations, I believe. Um, again, um, my grandfather knew that I had things to do. In fact, um, in this later stage of my life, I've been presented with many challenges 
from my ancestors that um, they want me to accomplish. And so um, if I had gone um, and cut my life short, I was in my 40s. If I had cut my life short at that time, um, you know, there would be a big void. <laughs> There'd be a large, large void. Uh, in fact, I didn't even start my career as a teacher until later, you know. So imagine all the kids that I would not have talked. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened on the third near-death experience? When did that happen? The third near-death experience was more, um, more like a dream. And um, what had happened is that it was, <clears throat> um, I was... I got really sick. Um, I had um, when you're uh, when you're working in a school situation like here in Hawaii, uh, you have a lot of kids that uh, during the breaks they travel to different countries. Um, here in Hawaii, a lot of them was going to the Philippines and coming back with a lot of different diseases, uh, avian flu. <laughs> uh, so. Several of my kids um, got sick and when they came back and uh, they infected me. So I had avian flu, um, I had uh, spinal meningitis. Oh, wow. And uh, my blood sugars were so dangerous that uh, my, uh, my diabetes went into septic. And so, um, by the time I went to the doctors, uh, to see the doctors, they told me that had I waited um, for an hour or so uh, longer, uh, there would be nothing they could do to save me. Hmm. So um, they put me in the, uh, they put me in the intensive care unit and um, I was there for so, uh, for about a week, but in this, uh, during the first night when I was the sickest, uh, I was delirious. Um, I was out of my mind. I was uh, visual. I was seeing visions, and uh, I saw uh, spirits walking in and out of the ER. Um, I saw a lot of uh, family members that had passed on. They were walking all over the place like they were waiting for me, ready to grab me, you know, or escort me. And so I was very scared. And this, this dream that I had, um, I found myself in a graveyard. And uh, it was a spooky graveyard, it was old, it was broken. And um, I started walking around and looking at the graves and I found an open grave <laughs> with my headstone had my name and everything and uh, a hole in the ground and uh, when I saw that I started panicking and I started running around and trying to find a place to get out and um, I felt really sorry for myself that I was in a bad situation and um, then out of the blue, this man 
very, very well dressed, tall, handsome, and uh, had a cane. And he was walked up to me and he says, uh, he called me by my name and I look at him and I says, well, who are you? And the man says, I'm death and I'm here for you. <laughs> I go, no, you're not. <laughs> and so I, I stood up and I started running and uh, I remember falling in a hole, my own grave, <laughs> and clambering out and scrambling and um, I'm running around and it was hilarious to this man. He was laughing and uh, kind of like taunting me in a way. And finally he says, you know what, uh, he had enough. So he sent some um, dogs after me. They were black. In fact, they remind me of uh, Rottweilers. They're huge. Hellhounds. Yeah, so they came running after me. There were four of them and they were running after me and I started running uh, for my life and Eventually, one of them tripped me up and I fell and I scrambled up to the tree and um, I was surrounded by these Rottweilers. And for me, the type of person I am, when you surround me, I want to do two things. Either I'm going to try and negotiate with you <laughs> or I'm going to come out swinging. <laughs> so these dogs were all ready to chew me to bits. And I felt this rage inside me that I'd never felt in a long time. And this rage just came up and started pushing me and I started growing. I grew large, I grew hair, I grew hair, I grew giant teeth. <laughs> I ended up morphing into a giant werewolf. And this werewolf, the dog started to chomp, uh, attack, and I just ripped off four of them. And uh, so when this man saw me fighting, he came up to me and he looked at me and he says, hmm, look like you still have something valuable to fight for. I says, what do you mean? I says, I've been watching you for the past couple of years and you were ready to destroy yourself. You're doing things that would have destroyed anyone. And, uh, but now, look like you found something that uh, you, you found worthy of your interests in. So you're fighting for it. That's really good. Congratulations. And so he let me go. Death let me go. <laughs> yeah, I guess that don't happen too often. It's my figuring. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the thing about it is after he let me go, he said, I'll catch you later. <laughs> I'll catch you later. <laughs> you know, I'll catch you later. <laughs> so, okay, but right now. <laughs>
not right now. <laughs> so w was that a time of your life where maybe things were a little bit different? Maybe you didn't have as much uh, enthusiasm for life or? Uh... Yeah, in fact, um, it was probably my lowest point in my life. Uh, I was not happy. Um, I was not happy with any of my relationships. I was not happy with myself. Um, there, uh, a lot of um, bad things were happening to me, poor decisions. Um, it was a turning point. Like a lot of people, um, before you start turning and for, for good, you got to hit rock bottom. And that was rock bottom for me. <laughs> yeah, you're talking to one of those people, brother. So, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote my book and that's what most of that book was about, about hitting rock bottom and changing my life from that point on. So, yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. You, you think a near-death experience would be a rock bottom, right? <laughs> but, uh, no, yeah, it was a really rough spot in my life. And actually, um, the one good thing that kept me tethered to this world is my wife, Elle. I met her right around that time. And she was the thing that um, I think I was fighting for because that was the only bright spot in my life at that time. Sorry. <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah. So briefly tell me about your fourth near-death experience. And then I want to get into a little bit about your, how you helped some, uh, some kids that you were teaching and how that played a part uh, <laughs> in your happiness in life. Okay. Um, the final near-death experience uh, occurred when I had an open-heart surgery. I had a triple bypass and open-heart surgery to repair my atrial valve. And while I was doing this, the surgery is supposed to last um, about three and a half to four hours. Um, eight hours later, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm out there, but uh, there are major complications. And I knew something was wrong when I woke up in the hospital and I saw all of these round circle marks um, not only up and down my chest, but on my stomach and on, uh, I turned around on my back. My wife saw these little marks and they were from the defibrillators. Oh. They were trying to start my, uh, start my heart. And one of the people that was at um, the surgery was a relative of mine. <laughs> and she told me, you know, you know how many times uh, the doctor was ready to call you dead? <laughs> Ugh. And uh, but it was the nurses that says, no, we need to uh, try and revive them. They did all kinds of stuff to try and revive me. But in the near death experience, um, when my body started experiencing um, problems, I popped out of my body again. And I found myself floating above in the ER. And I started looking down and um, I didn't recognize who the person was on the operating table. 
I didn't recognize them at all. And um, my first mind seeing people walking around and doctors asking for this and they look really excited. I said, oh, poor thing, this, uh, whoever this person is, they're having problems. <laughs> and so um, I moved and I, uh, I kind of like moved on the side and I saw myself and that's when panic, full-blown panic set in. And right when that panic set in, my old friend who took me when I was five years old, showed up again and he grabbed me and took me out of the room and uh, through the ceiling. In fact, uh, I remember looking down and I could see the hospital the grounds and the parks around the hospital. And we went right back to that little room where I had my first near-death experience. So when I entered the room, I looked around and I said, oh, we're back at the safe room. And he looked at me and says, yeah, hey, you remember. <laughs> I had to kind of like uh, reorient myself to uh, what was going on but I figured out that okay I was back in the I'm back in the safe room I'm okay um, just hope I um, you know don't have to go anywhere else <laughs> <laughs> uh, that time I was in there for a long time it seemed like um, you know maybe three four days but, um, you know, because we talked about all kinds of stuff. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So my first and my first and last uh, fourth near-death experience were very similar to each other. We went back to the same place, uh, seen the same things, uh, met the demons that were outside trying to get at me. What do you do? You I want to ask you about this just from uh, a religious standpoint. Uh -huh. uh, what What is your religious standpoint? I know growing up in Hawaii, it's probably a little different customs and, and uh, years and years of not everything being, you know, Christian based and, and all that. What is mm -hmm. your belief system? I should say, not necessarily religion. Well, my belief system, um, you know, I was, I was raised uh, as a member of the LDS Church, the Mormons, mm -hmm. okay? And um, I was raised that way. However, uh, my family, especially on Molokai, uh, we, my, because of my lineage and stuff, we come from, uh, we have really strong ties to uh, the Hawaiian spirituality. Okay, I don't want to say religion per se, uh, but it's more Hawaiian uh, spirituality where we respect all things. Um, we respect, um, you know, all gods, if you have them, <laughs> uh, we respect them. And uh, we hold our own beliefs as sacred to us and uh, not necessarily for you. Uh, what's sacred to me and my family may not be sacred to you and your family because uh, 
our beliefs would be different and where we are and what we work, uh, what we work at, uh, very different. Our needs would be different. So I would say the Native Hawaiian spirituality is based on um, the needs and the practices of the individual, okay? So, um, and it's really interesting that when we have uh, Hawaiian practitioners getting together, uh, one person may do one thing one way, one person may do another way and respect the differences. Um, and it's not like, um, you know, a lot of these Christian-based religions where, you know, I go to this church and if you go to this church and you have different belief, we're going to conflict, yeah? We're going to have conflict. In uh, the Hawaiian way and stuff, we respect all of them. So um, I have no problem with that. Man, if the whole world looked at things like that, uh, <laughs> what a blissful world we would live in. Because I, it's 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 amazing. It's amazing to me how much conflict in the world can be brought about by different yeah. religious beliefs. But in the end, it's all about having a higher power that you're respecting and, and looking up to and having a belief in. Even though it may be different from different religions, it's all the same basis. And it's yeah. a shame that people can't see that for what it is. Tell me a little bit about as a school teacher, how this, your gifts benefited you and, and how it benefited your students. <laughs> uh, when I started teaching psychology and it was an exciting time for me because I finally could teach a subject that I was actually trained for. <laughs> and right around the same time I started teaching psychology, that's when um, I started to learn how to remote view. And I wanted to take remote viewing into the class. And uh, the way I introduced that to, uh, to high school students was uh, precognition, which is part of, um, which was a small part of the curriculum in, in high school psychology, but um, that became my main um, emphasis. I wanted to, give my students a certain skill that they could use beyond high school. Um, teaching the kids about Freud and all of these, you know, Carl Jung and stuff like that, and their uh, different theories, and only talking about theories without learning how to apply psychology. How, how do you use your mind to do different things? Uh, that was more interesting to me than teaching my kids uh, theory. <laughs> I wanted application. So uh, all of my kids during that time and stuff, I took them through uh, remote viewing and we got some really, really good results from, from students uh, where they began uh, predicting uh, they didn't know they were doing it, but <laughs> uh, for them, they're just drawing pictures. And, uh, but some of these kids uh, were very gifted and talented. And uh, I had one boy that was able to uh, predict the winner of 
a horse race five days in a row. Nice. Again, he didn't know what he was doing. I was the only person that understood that um, what they're doing for the kids. They're just trying to uh, draw sketches um, of pictures in an envelope. And when they match the envelope, uh, the picture in the envelope, they're excited. <laughs> you know, they're excited. Yeah, the mister, I got them. So, okay, thank you. You know, great job. And uh, so these pictures were random pictures chosen. And, uh, you know, nobody saw them before that. But for the kids, you project their minds and see inside the, uh, see the photos inside the envelope and draw these things out. Uh, that was amazing. <laughs> Dave, it has been an absolute blast having you on here. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm honored that you gave us some time. It's been one of my, my favorite interviews uh, that we've done over the last five years. Very insightful, very entertaining. Now, you've got a, uh, a website intuitiveinsightshawaii.com and I will post that uh, in the show notes and actually uh, put it up on the, uh, if you're watching the video, I'll have it posted on the video so you won't uh, have any problems. The book is Journey of Our Souls. You can get that on the website. And you also have uh, some other services that you offer on the website, some uh, psychic readings and things like that. I know you've got a price yeah. list and everything up there for time, time limits and price. So I'm going to encourage everybody to check out intuitiveinsightshawaii.com and see what's going on. And uh, what do you got going on in the near future? Is there another book in the makings or was this going to be your only attempt? Uh, there's several other books um, that I'm working on. Some of these other books are uh, children's books and they're stories um, that I've been writing for a while. And I just, um, I'm just trying to finish up uh, finish them up and make them appropriate for the age, <laughs> the age group that I uh, I want. So um, I'm going to be giving them to editors, and uh, they're stories that uh, you know some of the favorites I've been telling my grandbabies for a while. <laughs> so they they know the stories, and um, but now it's in uh, in written form. Um, I also have um, several short instructional books, um, one on um, predicting future using uh, associative remote viewing and uh, using a method that I created that you can take right into the casinos and use if you want. Nice. Um, so that's available. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel that uh, I post numbers for the Powerball and the Mega Million, and that's uh, under my name, David J. Wallace, backslash picking winners. <laughs> that's on YouTube, and um, it's free. <laughs> I just I'm posting it because my goal in this YouTube channel is to make as many multi-millionaires as possible. <laughs> have you hit Have you hit the lottery yourself, David, or do you even play the lottery? I play the lottery uh, 
the best lotteries that I've done, uh, worked with was the California Fantasy Five. Um, I hit that three times. And the best I did for the Mega Million was hitting uh, five of the numbers. Nice. Okay. All on the same ticket. So, yeah, that's a nice payoff. <laughs> <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming on, buddy. It's been it's been super fun. And uh, when you get some of these other books or other projects, we'll have you on again because I, I, I yeah. we barely scratched the surface of some of these topics. So it'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know we can we can go on for for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Uh, can you do me a favor? Absolutely. Can you send me your address so I can send you a hard copy of my book? Absolutely, I'd be glad to. And then uh, I'll return <laughs> the favor and send you a copy of mine as well. Aloha, <laughs> mahalo. Tracy, that is a man who has been through a lot. I think that's an understatement of the year. <laughs> and look how wonderful his life's turning out. I loved the stories about being in the children's hospital and seeing the beans come in from the ceiling and just yeah. walk around. And, you know, it's that's inspirational. It is that, very, that, yes. I know, if, I know if I had a sick kid, being able to think about that would probably be reassuring to me. Oh, definitely, definitely. I just... I don't know. It just warms your heart and makes you just feel good. So, all right, guys. Thank you so much. We will talk to you next week. All right, guys. Have a blessed week. We love you.